Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. Today's episode is from That's So Fucked Up. TSFU is a true crime light podcast about cults, murder, and other generally fucked up stuff. This episode is part of That's So Fucked Up Presents, which is a new project the team is working on. That's So Fucked Up Presents, each season is like a miniseries where they dive into a particular place or topic over the course of four episodes. It's pretty cool. It's going to be moving to its own feed. So go check them out. Help them get started with this project. All right, let's get this show on the road. Begin. The craziest part is if you look at Ted Bundy's victims, if you look at Stephanie's picture, and then you look at his mom slash sister, what he was told his sister, she even looks like them. So the question no. is, yes, is he killing women that looked like Stephanie? Or does he was he into Stephanie because she looked like his mother and he's killing women that looked like his mother? Oh my God, I think it's B. That's so fucked up Welcome to the first ever episode of That's So Fucked Up Presents. That's So Fucked Up Presents is a spin-off series of That's So Fucked Up, aka TSFU, a podcast about cults, murder, and other generally fucked up stuff. In That's So Fucked Up Presents, each season is like a mini-series where we dive into a particular place or topic over the course of four episodes. This season, we're talking about some of Colorado's most notorious murders. I'm your host, Ashley Richards, and this is Colorado Carnage. Today, we're talking about infamous serial killer Ted Bundy, and I'm so excited to introduce my co-host, former FBI special agent, author, host of CBS's Descent of a Serial Killer, professor, a whole bunch of other really cool stuff, and someone I feel very honored to call a friend, Dr. Brianna Fox. Hello, Brianna. Hey, Ash, and hey, everybody. So excited to have you on the show. I know you're busy having your own television show, and just like real quick, what else are you doing right now? Another TV show, and... A few other projects. You're wild. Yeah. A few other things in the works. Well, you were on Wild Crime on Hulu a little while back, and then Descent of a Serial Killer is only available in the UK, I believe, right? That's right. But I guess your listeners will hear first that I'll have a new show, which I'm hosting, coming out on Hulu this winter. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm so excited to tell you about Ted Bundy. I already know that you do know about him because uh, just casually a book that Brianna co-authored was with one of Bundy's arresting officers, right? That's correct. I It's a small world and always gets smaller, but uh, one of the people that arrested Bundy in Florida, uh, I co-authored a book with. Yes. You just continue to blow my mind. Okay. Well, the people are here for crime. So... Let's go ahead and give it to them. Just want to say real quick, I would also really encourage you guys to go check out my other show if you haven't yet. It's called That's So Fucked Up or TSFU the podcast. 
You can find it on all major listening platforms. And if you want to hear more Colorado crimes over there, we have a two-parter on John Benet Ramsey. We actually have an interview with Brianna about John Benet Ramsey on there as well. We have an episode on Chris Watts, Love Has Won, Alfred Packer. So lots more Colorado crime over there if that's what you're looking for. And I'm hoping and guessing you are since you're here. So let's get into it. Theodore Robert Bundy was born on November 24th, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont. He was born to 22-year-old Eleanor Louise Cowell. And back then, single mothers were very taboo. So she was sent to Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers, which just makes me so sad. You're young, you're in one of the most vulnerable situations, and then your family is like, and you're a shame on us. You must go send you off to like fucking quarantine until you pop the kid out. It's just, man. Due to the shame, the embarrassment. I mean, no, and I'm sure you'll get to this, but I think that has a lot to do with his psychological issues. Let's put it that way. Yes, yes. I definitely wanted to ask you. Well, I have little notes for myself <laughs> later on where I'm like, and ask Brianna about this because I'm definitely curious as to some of the stuff that we will go over and how that created the monster that he ended up becoming. His birth certificate has an Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall listed as the father, but Marshall completely denies having anything to do with that. So Bundy's father has never really been confirmed. And all of this confusion about his parents caused him a lot of distress. His cousins called him a bastard and kind of bullied him for it. And some members expressed suspicion that Ted was a product of incest and that Luis had gotten pregnant by her father. So gets a little bit more fucked up. His grandparents adopted him, and Ted thought that his mom was his sister for the beginning of his life. And he later admitted that he kind of knew the truth all, the, all along because of the age gap and claiming that he could, quote, just tell. I feel like that's got to be really traumatic. Like finding out that your sister is actually your mom. Do you know when he found that out? I didn't actually find that because I know he moved out with her when she was three or when he was three. Yeah, it was actually while he was in his first long term stable relationship and he found this out. Now, that was the first time I ever heard that he said he knew it all along. That sounds a little bit like Ted being Ted, where of course he knew Ted knows everything. Oh, he knows everything. Super swarmy and, you know, just always, you know, who could know more than him. So it would be unusual for him to say, oh, I was actually shocked by this. But his family, his friends, everybody was told and seemed to keep up this facade that his mother was actually his sister, even though she wasn't. And when he found it out for sure, was actually while he was in this long-term relationship. And it was sort of when everything started crashing and went downhill and his first murders occurred shortly afterwards. Interesting. So that's why you're saying that you think that probably really played into, you know, the horrors that were to come. Okay, yeah. And he was actually, I know you can't have personality disorders as a child, but he was expressing some very creepy habits. On more than one occasion, when he was a toddler, his aunt woke up to find him placing knives around her while she was sleeping. 
Yikes. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, I'm sorry. What? In a Vanity Fair article, Dr. Dorothy Lewis stated that these actions would only be a result of a child who suffered extreme abuse themselves or witnessed extreme violence amongst family members. And as you know, his grandpa was an absolute piece of fucking human garbage. So this just seems like obviously there's some nurture stuff going on. But to me, this sounds like nature. He would sometimes laugh when seeing his female family members be abused. What is that? It's so hard to tease out nature and nurture. And we try doing this both anecdotally, but also in the research. Unfulfilling in terms of results, but it seems to be about 50-50 if you look at the overall population and we're trying to study, you know, how much of this is biological or somehow hereditary where it's passed down or even in, in environmental factors such as getting hit in the head, right? That would still be biological, but not the same biological that I think you're referring to, Ash, where it came from like his grandparents or father figure um, who may actually yeah. be one and the same, as you mentioned, which is horrifying to begin with. But remember, there's also some nurture things that come into play even when nature is there. So for instance, if his grandfather, who knows what his issues were, if they were nature or nurture or brought on to him, but if he's beating his mother and Ted sees this, he's got kind of two strategies, internalize it, kind of collapse or externalize it. Um, very rare do we ever see people that can withstand that kind of trauma and be healthy and well-adjusted. Um, there's just the way that it comes out. So Ted could have, as a coping mechanism, you know, laughed because that was his way of dealing with it, almost like making it seem like it was less traumatic, even though it was extremely traumatic, thereby desensitizing it to him. And that's why he's capable of doing the horrific things he did. So I think I just realized that my listeners and I probably have a lot in common with Ted Bundy. Not a lot, but a little bit because, you know, I do true crime comedy as a way to um, essentially protect myself from the traumas of the world. Because if I don't laugh at these horrors going on, then I will internalize it and, you know, just probably get really depressed and go down a not a good path. So I do kind of feel like it's either you let it take you down or you find some humor in it. So no, I wouldn't say we have a lot in common with Ted Bundy, but I, I think that's very relatable. So while I was thinking like, wow, what a fucking psychotic little sadist of a child that does make more sense. And strange things happen. I've seen people who are talking about trauma, talking about a car accident that they've witnessed or something and laugh. And it's so off-putting when you see it happen until you realize the biology of what's going on. And it's exactly like you said, Ash, sometimes that's just our coping mechanism and they're not actually laughing because it's funny, but it's this almost uncontrollable biologic response that has a lot to do with the chemicals going on in your brain as you're dealing with that trauma and reliving it. I don't know if you've ever had somebody startle you and you laugh. It's the same type of thing uh, that's ongoing at the same time in your brain. Yeah, you're like, ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Different things happening. And, you know, who are we to judge coping mechanisms? I mean, there's some that are really healthy. There's some that are really unhealthy. And it's a vast continuum in between. And, you know, for us, you know, I love doing this podcast with you because I, too, I, if you're not laughing about it. And by the way, a lot of cops have that kind of gallows humor. 
And a lot of people think, you know, how could you be laughing about, you know, some of the things you see, but for them, it's the only way to keep going. If they don't laugh about it, they will collapse. Right. I always think about homicide detectives. How do those people not let that rule their entire lives? Like you have to be able to kind of like put it aside and or be able to find humor in situations or else. And I mean, Brianna, I know you've been an arresting officer in some some really tough, you know, tough cases. I you mentioned to me one time arresting a mother in front of her wailing children and, you know, that kind of stuff. If you're dealing with that on a regular basis, like you are with your job or like I am on the podcast talking about this stuff on a weekly basis, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Exactly. And often I just do both, you know, multiple times in a week. So (laughs) what did uh, the patron saint of Florida, Jimmy Buffett say? If we didn't laugh, we would all go insane. Is he the patron saint of Florida? Oh, you didn't know that? I did not know that. That makes sense though. I dressed up Florida style today for you. This is for you. I think we've swapped because <laughs> it's 94 degrees and I'm wearing long sleeves. So, <laughs> yeah. And I have the AC set to 69 and I'm in like a sundress. <laughs> you Florida people, you guys are like really crazy in more ways than one. And I swear I'm going to get you to do a little TSFU mini series on Florida with me. It's going to happen. Maybe after you're done shooting your Jillian freaking television shows. But you guys, I have an idea for a mini series called What the Florida. <laughs> Brianna's DMs are always open at Special Agent Alpha on Instagram. So if you would love to see me and Brianna co-host What the Florida, spam her inbox. Thank you. Sorry, Brianna. I was going to say, <laughs> with, a, with a title like that, Ash, how, how am I possibly going to say no? It's too alluring. What the Florida? Right? How has that not been trademarked? That's incredible. I just don't know what's going on down there. But that's a discussion. (laughs) That's a discussion for another day. The hardest job will be trying to pick out which cases. There's a plethora to choose from. Oh, such good ones. Like just the wildest, like stranger than fiction type of shit that you're like, no, really? Oh, okay. (laughs) So yes, what the Florida? Everybody watch out for that in the... Probably not the near future, but the future for sure. And now let me get back to Ted because I went on a little side ramble there. So here we definitely see some bingo escalation. Actually, this would be a great time for me to tell everybody. Head over to tsfuthepodcast.com and you can you can just play right there on the website, but you can play murder bingo and that's just really fun. Because I think Bundy is going to hit a lot of our boxes today. On Murder Bingo, we've got like white male, intelligent, escalation, you know, all the usual hallmarks and childhood trauma. Bundy fits a lot of them. So with escalation, he became a peeping Tom. And Brianna, I'm sure you know that peeping Toms almost always escalate to being rapists and or murderers, right? There's a strong correlation there. And the active ingredient with peeping toms, a lot of people think it's actually the sexual component. And it's really not. It's the the thrill seeking, the excitement that they get of looking into somebody's life. It's the, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, but I am. And pushing the boundaries. They enjoy the fact that it's, they know society says this is not allowed. 
that person would feel violated if they knew this was happening. And that's the thing they love. Not actually seeing if they don't even see the person naked, they could be seeing them as they made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it would be just as thrilling and exciting to them as if they saw them getting undressed. Do you think that's like a power thing? It is. It's power and thrill seeking. Um, Part of it is they have that say, like, whether or not you want me to watch you, I'm going to. I have say Mm -hmm. over what I see. And it could be this glimpse into their lives. But the other is the the rush that they get. Um, And there have been some theories about sensation seeking and how that relates to escalation. Because, you know, if you've bungee jumped, you know, six times, maybe it doesn't seem as scary anymore. And now you have to go to skydiving. And after that has to be, you know, shark luging or whatever people escalate into after that. Um, and so it keeps escalating. And the same theory applies with peeping toms and sex offenses all the way up into murder. So this is really random, but would you say that's the kind of thing that goes on with like mounted climbers who are like, I need to climb every single one of the highest summits? I, I, I <laughs> genuinely do think this. There is this one guy, I forget what his last name is. His first name is Felix. And when I'm teaching about this in my class, I show a clip of him where he's literally skydiving from space. And I was like, what? (laughs) What happened in your life where you got to the point where you're like, you know, regular skydiving isn't dangerous enough. You know, I have to now skydive from space. It's not cutting it. It's not cutting it. Yeah. Like, this isn't isn't exciting enough for me. So they keep escalating. And you can argue that that's a healthy way to get the thrills out and to, you know, get your kicks versus this very unhealthy and destructive way, which is hurting other people. Right. I think doing potentially self-destructive things is always bad, but destructing other people's life against their will, definitely super not cool. Way worse. Yeah. So Ted lived with his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, in Philadelphia for the first three years of his life. And his grandpa Samuel was a racist piece of shit who beat his wife and the family dog regularly, abused neighborhood cats, bullied co-workers, and abused and bullied his daughters as well. So you can imagine that having this man be the leading male presence in your life for the first few years, whether that is um, subconsciously or not, since I know you don't remember a lot before like five, that, that's going to fuck you up. I know this sounds fucked up, but I've never seen an animal or a person get like beat really badly. So I don't know which one would bother me more, but the idea of watching your fucking like vulnerable, just kind dog get beat, I don't know. That just sounds so fucking rough and traumatizing. I agree with you. And I always think crimes against children, animals, and the elderly or disabled. I mean, that is just the lowest drudges of humanity, anyone who can do that. And the saddest part is it's the same type of thing that bullies do. It's picking on people that they think they can, you know, win against or animals they think they can win against because they can't, they don't even have a self-esteem to take on somebody their own size or age or capability level. So it's like this manifestation in the worst, most despicable, disgusting way, like picking on somebody smaller or, you know, younger, less capable. It's like, God, it's so disgusting. It's horrible. It really is a type where, um, like in the FBI and our crimes against children unit, 
it was predominantly females that had to work in that unit because they were so afraid that if men were working in that unit, when they would go arrest them, they'd go beat the shit out of these guys when they found them. Oh, wow. That's why they thought the arresting officers just like wouldn't be able to. You know, I've always thought that was so interesting because um, I'm a tiny package full of a lot of rage. And I feel like if I was in the presence of somebody who um, was a rapist or a fucking just awful person, you know, and I had the strength, I would definitely want to beat the fucking shit out of them. So I can I, I, I've always wondered if that's something difficult for law enforcement when you have just the worst people sitting in front of you and you just want to, like, rip their fucking head off. And and you can't all that red tape, you know, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Crazy. I, it, honestly, I think it is one of the hardest things and people don't understand what it's like when you've gotten to know all these victims, you've heard it from them or their family members firsthand. And then you go to do that arrest. And it, most people think, oh, wouldn't that be like a great day? But you now have to confront this person that you like know how horrible they are and everything they did, it really is difficult. And even though women stereotypically, and I think the data shows as well, are more empathetic, I think that we also have more self-control usually. And so Mm. we also use our, you know, that anger or rage, you know, and channel it to let me get the truth out of this person. I want to hear what happened. I want to bring some closure. How awesome are women, by the way? There should be a lot more women in law enforcement. It is about 12% of all law enforcement across the country. Wow, that's fucked. If anybody's listening, consider a career in law enforcement and be one of the good ones, especially ladies. Guys too, but ladies, yeah, let's fucking pack that force a little bit more. Yikes. Okay, so back to Bundy. I think we should just have like BTB. Wherever, like, so everybody knows we're back to Bundy now (laughs) because there's just like so many interesting things to unpack here. So, back to Bundy, he moves out with Luis when he's three, and Luis meets John Bundy, who she marries in 1951. And Bundy says later that he felt unloved by his mother, hmm, who had four more kids, so attention wasn't solely on him. So, Boo-hoo, poor Ted. So you think this whole kind of, let's, you know, for lack of a better word, mommy issues were pretty much the catalyst. I do. And I know it sounds so cliche, but as you just said, I think that a lot of this was kind of baked in. By the time he was even five, the fact that he was already so narcissistic or at least claiming like I didn't get enough love. I mean, plenty of kids around the globe have multiple brothers and sisters and they don't turn out to be serial killers. But that's a very Bundy-ish thing to kind of hang his hat on. It was like, poor me. And he almost, it's like he knows the song, but like not the lyrics. Like, But he did have a lot of bad things happen in his life that he could actually invoke. But I think they hit too close to home. So he won't even, he can't even touch those. So he comes up with this other thing that he actually feels, which is poor me. And yet it's like, dude, get it together. Lots of people have lots of siblings and they don't kill people because of that. That's so interesting. That does make sense that he would want to keep a certain amount of denial just because, you know, if you're Ted or somebody like that, you 
want to continue to feel good about yourself always. So you'll just, you know, make up lies or whatever, you know. I think either to change the public's opinion or just in some cases to convince yourself that you're not a terrible fucking person and that there, of course, were reasons. And if you had lacked love like that too, maybe you would be out there killing people. I mean, right? Come on. I know. And and the logic is so ridiculous. But remember, we're hearing it as sane outsiders versus in Ted's head. This makes total sense. Right. And that's something that's so important, I guess, like interesting to remember that a lot of times what these people are putting outwardly is a manifestation of what's going on inside. Yeah. It makes total sense then. It's and it's a reflection. You almost get those little nuggets of information. It's a glimpse into their worldview. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I love talking to you about it because obviously you just know the psychology and everything. You're able to explain some stuff so much better, which is fun. So he was also picked on in high school because he had a speech impediment. And when he graduated from high school in 65, he graduated also from peeping Tom to petty theft. And after that, he went to the University of Washington in Seattle, where he lived on campuses. And there, professors found him to be brilliant and studious. And this is apparently where he honed his, quote, charm. I don't need to say, I don't know. Is that my quotes? I'm like, who put quotes there in my notes? No, I think that's me. That is my notes. It's not a quote from somebody else. But his, oh, I put it in quotes because everybody like is like, oh, he was so charming and good looking. And Was he though? Was he? Charming, comma, given he was a serial killer, but charming given the population. I don't think so. I, you know, I right. think we're like kind of, it's a relative component compared to other serial killers. Yeah, Ted may be charming, but amongst the, you know, the the, the worst of these, you know, the most horrible tasting cookies, this one's the best. It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. And you're very charming and you're not a serial killer. So, you know, that that word could really go either way. So that's definitely why I put it in quotes because I was like, yeah, I don't know about this guy with his charm, but, you know, yeah, air quotes, charm. (laughs) So his first love was Stephanie Brooks, and he, like the victims that he would later have, studied her and watched her before they started dating, kind of like hunting prey, essentially, but before deciding to eat them as well. He called her the most beautiful girl that he'd ever seen. Not surprisingly, she had dark hair parted down the middle. As we will see, the victimology is later. Beautiful, dark-haired girls with their hair parted down the middle. Brianna, you've got yours off to the side. I think you'd be okay. I, I do that just as an anti-Bundy mechanism, just to, if there's any just other in case. Bundy neophytes, I, I just, I'm going to keep them off, off my any face. Any copycat killers out there? Yeah. They'll stay They're not me. coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good plan. I wanted to ask you, I said that that's his victim type. Is that the correct terminology for somebody's preferred victim? Yeah, you you said victimology, and that's definitely the word that we use. In fact, you have a whole sub area within criminology that just studies 
why certain people prey upon certain victims. Um, there's different preferences. There's different you know levels of risk associated with everybody. Um, you could be somebody's type, but not another's. And I think with Bundy, it's one of the most clear-cut cases. Uh, I happen to live in Tampa when the Seminole Heights serial killer was happened to be killing people. And he had no victim type. I mean, black, white, young, old, male, female, literally across the spectrum, he was killing all of those different types. Ted Bundy had such a strong victim profile that literally you put them in a lineup and they almost look identical. And you think he's kind of one of the most hardcore of, 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 (laughs) what am I trying to say? Like he had such a strong preference for victims that looked so similar to Stephanie Brooks that it, he would just be super risky and everything to to go after these types of girls. Even girls started dyeing their hair blonde, doing side parts, anything to not be Bundy's type side part. You, no, actually, side we both part. have a side part going on. And my hair is blue. So you have beautiful mermaid hair. Thank you. When it's blue, I'm going for mermaid. And when it's pink or purple, I'm going for fairy. So it just kind of depends. But mermaid summer, it feels like, you know, like mermaid girl summer. (laughs) I don't know what hot girl summer is. I'm not participating in that. That sounds like it's for younger people. But mermaid girl summer, I'm in. (laughs) You can be a part of the gang, too, because your hair is really long. You don't even have to dye it blue. It's just long and pretty. So. The gang just now consists of you and I. And you live in Florida. Yeah. So hashtag mermaid girl summer, me and Brianna, you could, you could become a part of that. So just, we're just saying. (laughs) We're just saying. (laughs) Just throwing it out there, gang. I have a mind blowing thing to tell you about. (gasps) Well, I definitely want to hear it then. The craziest part is if you look at Ted Bundy's victims If you look at Stephanie's picture and then you look at his mom slash sister or what he was told his sister, she even looks like them. So the question is, yes, is he killing women that looked like Stephanie or does he was he into Stephanie because she looked like his mother and he's killing women that looked like his mother? Oh, my God. I think it's B. Do you agree? (laughs) That's my theory. Yeah, totally. That's my theory. Okay, I didn't know that she had a resemblance to Stephanie. Oh my God, he's totally killing his mom over and over. Yeah, because there is that tendency, that weird fucking tendency for people to like date people who are similar to their parents. Ew, weird. But, but, (laughs) right? Like in, in in some fashions, people will just kind of subconsciously search out people who are similar to their parents. Um, I would usually think in sort of a personality way, but maybe in looks. Ew, weird. <laughs> right. I know. I'm like putting that in my own. I'm like, I can't even have to like pre-schedule a therapy appointment before I d- dive too deep into that. I don't like that. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Bundy. God damn it, Bundy. He's just like opening up all so- sorts of fucked up doors. God damn. Again. <laughs> Again. So how he connected with Stephanie is they both loved skiing And one day they carpooled to the mountain and they hit it off. They did date for a while, but when she graduated, she ended things with him and he just completely fucking lost it. He was totally devastated and always was like kind of plotting to get her back. And 
Actually, that's a great time to take a quick commercial break. So please stay tuned. We will be playing a promo from Amanda Knox's podcast, Labyrinths. Amazing show. I highly recommend it. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be right back. Like we did, we can't wait. Like we only have so much time yep. to get to this boat. Go, we got to go. I at 15 lost my mom to a murder. She came within a whisker of having her life profoundly altered in that moment. And I thought we'll get in somehow, like up the drain pipe <laughs> and confront them going about their covert wickedness. They had about 10 SWAT type vehicles. They surrounded the house. There is this puzzle that becomes our lives, and it is easy to miss how the pieces fit together, but they do. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Christopher Robinson. And I'm Amanda Knox. After four years in an Italian prison for a murder I didn't commit, I know what it's like to be absolutely stuck, to wind up in a life I never expected. Together, we're bringing you labyrinths about the upturns, downturns, wrong turns, and U-turns that shape our lives. For everyone's got their own personal maze. Well, maybe this time I can sell drugs and I just won't use them. I said, oh no, I've got to think higher. This cannot be my destiny. And we're all facing our own minotaurs. I was forced into a marriage with a man that my family thought would be strong enough to control me. He's actually a member of Al-Qaeda. When I got in the room with him, I wanted a sliver of remorse in this guy's eyes. Yeah. There was not. It was devastating. There will be adventure. And as we left, a dark green lancia was following us. I've never been tailed before by anyone, not least the uh, henchmen of the secret rulers of the world. And catastrophe. The best minute of my day, Amanda, is the minute before I wake up. That is the best minute of my day. We'll be asking serious questions in silly ways. Did Taco Bell do more to alleviate racial prejudice towards Hispanics in America than anybody else? Maybe. I'm serious. <laughs> we'll be treading into controversial territory. I got emails from Trump supporters saying, thanks so much for finally talking about the way the left is being. And then I got all these emails from people on the left saying, this is exactly what people need to know about Trump supporters. And I just kind of said, all right, well, this, <laughs> this is going to get ugly at some point. And looking for the truth. My life was changed by a corrupt judge, not by Roman Polanski. People can say whatever they want, but it'll never be the truth. I know what the truth is, and that's all I need. And the truth is, your life can change in a moment. Life is a labyrinth, a never-ending series of problems and opportunities. So come on, get lost with us as we bring you stories from Andrew Yang, Malcolm Gladwell, John Ronson, Dave Navarro, Yasmin Mohammed, LeVar Burton, and others. Listen to Labyrinths on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And I thought, well, whatever happens is going to be kind of interesting. Okay, and we're back from break. And you guys, Brianna was just showing me a picture of Bundy's mom. And holy fuck, does she look like the OG victim? <laughs> like, I don't know if that makes sense. But, you know, like, like she looks like definitely he 
based his dating and criminal career off of what his mother looked like. So yeah, I think I'm with you that he was just murdering her over and over. And it's funny because I have a question written for you next that says, Brianna, was he murdering Stephanie over and over? But we already answered that. No, we think he was murdering his mom, Louise. Interesting. And he's not even the first serial killer to do that. Ed Kemper, who was the first person profiled on the TV show Mindhunter, he was also known as the co-ed killer. And he would go around and kill, you know, these beautiful women. And he literally, it was to the point where he, I think, killed his mother and ripped out her vocal cords and stuffed it down the drain. Mm -hmm. And he was like, even after all of this, he's like, I still can't shut my mother up. I think he was the most kind of in touch with the fact that he was trying to kill his mother over and over and over again. But even though, I mean, young Mrs. Bundy may resemble these victims. I think if you asked Ted, he'd be like, what? No. Right. I think he would totally deny it and have no, like, he would never admit to this. Although I think for us, you know, with Monday morning, you know, the hindsight, we can look and be like, yeah, Ted, you were trying to kill your mother over and over again. Yeah. BTB back to Bundy. So in 1971, Ted starts working at a suicide prevention line. And a lot of people know this because he became really good friends with crime writer Anne Rule, and then she wrote The Stranger Beside Me, which is, you know, one of true crime's biggest books. And I just find this so interesting. Like, what do you think the fuck this is about? Why is Ted working at a suicide hotline? That seems very weird. (laughs) Yeah. Breakup with Stephanie probably shifted him to thinking, like, he's got all this anger and pain. And it's almost like before you know, we see this play out like in movies, you know, before they go full villain, like they try to go on the straight and narrow, like try to go the good path. And that epically fails. OK, so I, I, I kind of see that it's like Dahmer before he started getting super crazy. He tried going to his to church with his grandma a bunch. Oh, maybe the Lord will set me straight. And ultimately he was like, mm, no, I want to kill and eat people really bad. It is. And if you think about it, we may struggle with small demons on a, you know, day to day where it's like, oh, no, I can say no, I'm not going to go to, you know, happy hour or something with my friends. I have so much work I have to do at home. But, you know, you may be able to fight that once or twice. And if you don't get your work done, it's like, okay, by the time the fourth friend asks you, oh, come to happy hour, you're like, okay, and you go. I have to. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I know. I have to go to happy hour. That's like a, for us, the type of thing. But for these guys that are really fighting serious demons, you often see there's like a last gasp where they're trying to get their lives on the right path. And I think with Bundy in this weird way, it was almost cathartic for him to hear people that were in more pain than he was. Um, He was struggling so bad. He felt so badly rejected by his mother. And now this woman, he never really loved anyone before, but I think he really did love Stephanie. And there's some drama associated with whether people think he can even love. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But, um, you know, he felt so strongly about Stephanie and now she breaks his heart too. And or at least in his perception of it, although I think he was probably not blameless in that situation, but he probably was thinking, wow, the only people who have it worse than me are people who want to kill themselves. Again, that totally makes sense because misery loves company and who's, I'd say people on the brink of suicide are feeling pretty fucking miserable. So it almost actually really fucking makes sense that he did that. Gosh, I love talking to you. You're so fucking informative. A few years later, in early 1974, 
women began to go missing in Washington, Oregon, and Utah. And they all looked similar to guess who, like we've already said, his mother. So like I said, girls start dyeing their hair. They start doing it in different styles. They're just like, luckily, they know that a man is on the loose who is killing women with dark brown hair parted down the middle. You mentioned that the serial killer in Tampa earlier, sort of similar to Richard Ramirez, when somebody has no victimology, that's just the fucking scariest because you don't know what to look out for. Like they're just going around killing everyone. So at least I guess if there is a bright side for, you know, serial killers such as Bundy, who did have such a strong victimology, there is some way for the public to be a little bit informed about some things that they can do to stay a little bit safer, like maybe change their hairstyle, where when you don't know and they're just going after everybody, that's got to be so horrifying because everybody's in danger. Everyone's a potential victim. Exactly. But flaw, the flaw in that is that we assume that the offender is not going to change their victimology oh. and they won't adapt. Oh. And remember, I have a lot of difficulty explaining this to my students, but I'm sure your audience is way smarter. But, you know, the idea that they don't have they didn't have Instagram and you know Facebook, they didn't even have the Internet back then. So for him to even know that people were starting to put together that he was targeting people, I mean, he would have to be like literally watching the six o'clock news if it even made the six o'clock news or reading the newspaper, if it even made the newspaper, a lot of this was being shared by word of mouth. There was no social media. There was no internet. There were no cell phones to text your friends, watch out, dye your hair. This was all word of mouth. And it was still, you know, if it ever made it into the news, I mean, the idea was, you know, maybe if he saw it, then he would change his MO to basically try to throw authorities off the tracks. Oh, wow. That's a really good point. Okay, well, let's start getting into his victims because he had uh, a somewhat short but very fruitful, if you will, reign of terror. And he attacks his first victim, 18-year-old Karen Sparks, in January of 1974. He bludgeoned and sexually assaulted her while she was sleeping in her bed, but she was one of two survivors. Uh, having met survivors of serial killers, uh, the guilt they have, I mean, it almost ruins their life. And they're just almost like, I would have been better if I was out of my misery. And, and they also feel guilt like the other person was such a better person than me. They should have survived. I should have died. So from February 1st to June 11th, he murders six women in Washington and Oregon. These victims include 21-year-old Linda Healy, 19-year-old Donna Manson, 18-year-old Susan Rancourt, 22-year-old Roberta Parks, 22-year-old Brenda Ball, and 18-year-old Georgianne Hawkins. Just really sad. I mean, they were all such young girls, and I'm sure what they went through was terrifying because a lot of these girls he abducted and, you know, now and, and in the future. And one of my f worst fears is like getting abducted and tortured. I mean, I, I'm sure that's a lot of people's fear. But I think because the amount of fear that you would go through during the abduction, followed by the amount of pain of somebody doing torturous things to you, like sexually assaulting you or, you know, beating you before your death, it's just I really can't think of a worse way to go. 
And I mean, you say that, but a lot of times this does come up in court as an aggravating factor. And so sometimes you'll hear that when prosecutors are seeking the death penalty, they will actually, or even a life without parole sentence, they will say, this is the manner in which this person died. It's not just the fact that they were killed. It was the way they died and how horrific it was and just vile. And I think that does play a role in when they consider their sentence. Good. I think it should because when you're somebody who's a sadist and literally enjoys watching people suffer versus somebody who maybe committed a crime of passion or something, not that I'm like, those are great, but I can understand why those would have different sentencing rules. And to that point, I think you're right. There's a different type of person who can hear somebody playing for their life and, you know, crying hysterically and still keep escalating and doing worse. And somebody who maybe was, you know, in the moment, but it was over fast. I'm not, again, trying to apologize for those situations, but I am saying the type that is so unempathetic that they just keep going. I mean, that's an extra level of horrible that, you know, I, I do think that that's in a category into themselves. Yeah. Even amongst murderers. Oh, absolutely. And I just want to say to everybody, there is a giant thunderstorm going on at Brianna's house in Florida right now. So if you're hearing rumblings in the background and wondering, what is that? Uh, that's that's the Florida weather for you. <laughs> I can hear the rumbling. Florida summers. Yeah, it sounds wild. If you don't like the weather in Florida, wait 10 minutes. <laughs> I want to visit Florida. I mean... I don't know. It just seems it just seems cool. I'm going to come see you one day, but (laughs) one day I'll make it. Okay, so back to Bundy. Good Lord. On July 14th, 1974, at Lake Sammamish, Denise Nasland, 18, and Janice Ott, 23, go missing and their remains were later found at Issaquah burial site. The Taylor Mountain site is where the remains of a lot of the other victims from this time were buried. And he was actually a necrophiliac as well. So he would go back to these sites and engage in necrophilia with the victims' corpses until they were too putrefied to keep... Ugh, gross. Yeah. So what do you think necrophilia is about? Like, what drives that? So necrophilia, which is for people who hopefully, I really hope you didn't know this before I say it, but it's where people have sex with dead bodies. And I I think in this case and other cases of serial killers, it has to do with reliving the moment where they got so much pleasure and excitement. The like non-fucked up version of this would be like us looking over a photo album back. Remember when we had like real photos (laughs) or going through your iPhone and like looking through pictures. Oh, remember that vacation? Remember we went out that night with our friends? Oh, remember that concert? You know, it brings us joy. It's happy in the most extreme, despicable way. They're reliving the time where they had sex with that person and it was during the murder. And it's sort of the horrible serial killer version of looking at your old memories. Gross. And it's so funny. I just like assume that everybody knows what necrophilia is. <laughs> and it's like, maybe everybody doesn't know that. Good point. God bless those people. I'm sorry that we had to break you of that, but. Yeah. 
Good on them for making it this far without knowing it. I just assume that most of my listeners have done a million deep dives of their own into the darkest parts of the internet, except for hopefully not the dark web. Seriously, you guys, I've never been there, but some fucked up shit goes on there. I'm sure, Brianna, you could fucking speak to that. Good Lord. (laughs) But I, I think a lot of my listeners are definitely fucked up weirdos themselves like me. So I just always assume they know what I'm talking about. But necrophilia is, no, that's a weird one. So it probably is a good one (laughs) to tell people just in case. Yeah. Yeah, and I would also kind of think that's just, again, a part of that power and owning his victims and being able to do whatever he wants to them whenever he wants. And he was on a fucking spree. So the fact that he was still having to go back and visit these old victims' bodies is kind of insane to me because it just seems like he was insatiable. Like he just could not get enough once he started. And a lot of people ask me about timing. Some serial killers will kill a lot in a very short amount of time. Some will go years. Some go months in between killings or will kill once a year and do it regularly. But and Israel Keys is a good example of that. Um, and, you know, it really depends on that person's internal you know, drive and psyche. You know, I know people that can go on a vacation every three years and that's, you know, good enough for them. And then I know people who like have to go on vacation once a month or they lose their minds. So I really think that it's about, you know, your personal preferences. And when we're talking about serial killers, it does have a lot to do with it, too. Interesting. Yeah, because he was definitely on the move. Of course, as usual, it escalates to just what we're going to get into. It's like trying to pick up victims in the same day, just miles apart from each other. He gets very risky. So I think that in addition to the frequency at which he starts murdering women really show that he was just kind of like frenzied and needed to do this. Like Brianna said, it's kind of being passed around with word of mouth that there is a madman on the loose murdering young women. And it's at a lake when he asks a young woman to help him launch his boat that he tells her his name. And that's his big first slip up. I don't know why you would fucking tell somebody your real name. Like, hi, I'm Ted Bundy. Like, what an idiot. But also great. It's, you know, it's it's great when serial killers slip up. But also it's like, dude, come on. 101, right? Fake name, I would think. <laughs> but she gets a really weird vibe from him. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go. So lucky her. I'm I'm so glad that her intuition kicked in because obviously, yeah, she ended up not falling prey to him. He also approached at least six other women that day in public. So he's really escalating. He's getting super fucking risky. He's like approaching multiple women in a day, giving his real fucking name. And to know that this is when he starts acting so off the rails And then to know how much time it still takes for law enforcement to get their shit together and like nail this guy is just, yeah, you know. (laughs) So he moved to Salt Lake City in 1974 on Thanksgiving weekend for law school. His victims in Utah included 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Smith, who was the daughter of the Midvale police chief, which I think is if he knew that, I don't know if he did. Like, regardless, 
Wow, that's insanely ballsy. Yikes. And then 17-year-old Laura Amy. Both Melissa and Amy had been beaten, raped, sodomized, strangled with nylon stockings. That's the only time I'm going to say that because that was, you know, either some or all of that was mostly his MO. And I don't need, I don't think we need to describe him doing that to multiple women. We knew what he was up to. Um, He would later describe a ritual with the victim's deceased bodies that included shampooing their hair and applying makeup. So what do you think that's about? I think it shows he had some shame and it was trying to clean them up. He defiled them. He, you know, ruined these beautiful women. And it was like, oh, but I'm just putting makeup on you. It's almost like you look alive. You almost look like you were yourself. I mean, without getting into too much detail, but these women, I mean, were struggling. They were crying. You know, a lot of the cases that happened out by the lake or out in the wilderness, these women probably were covered in dirt and, you know, looked just awful. And he, when he found them, they were these beautiful girls. So I think it was his way of being like, oh, look, I left you the way I found you, except not So alive. do you think he maybe did like have the ability to feel some shame? I think that he, if he didn't feel shame, then it was certainly that he knew he did something wrong. Um, so a lot of people will say that serial killers don't know right from wrong. I think that's baloney. I think they know what they were doing is wrong. And they may feel shame over it, but they still will feel like, I'm not willing to, you know, stop myself or, you know, they had it coming in some way. It's that weird confluence of, you know, like, I feel bad, but you deserved it. You know, they can come into mental contortions like that versus, you know, and I've heard people who are psychopaths say something like that to me, you know, oh, I feel bad for what I did, but she probably shouldn't have done X, Y, or Z. And it's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. That's actually really interesting because I totally agree with you. Not that I'm a fucking licensed mental health professional or anything, but I definitely do think that the majority of violent criminals do know that they're doing something wrong because generally the only time that you would get off in the judicial system would be with a potentially or not get off, but, you know, maybe get a more lenient sentence was if you were to claim insanity, which means that at the time you did not know the difference between right and wrong. But that's very hard to prove because it's hardly ever the fucking case, right? It's usually just kind of like the defense's last card. Let's uh, maybe let's say he was crazy. Absolutely. And so insanity, the official insanity defense is you didn't know the difference between right and wrong, or you didn't have the ability to control your actions. So this is there's two parts to a crime, the actus rea and the mens rea. And so the mens rea is what's up here. The act is the actus rea. So saying somebody, you know, Ashley, you hit somebody over the head with a beer bottle. And therefore they, you know, I, I give a lot of like bar related references I'm realizing in this podcast. Are, are you, are you secretly a drunk? Are you, you're just like a really, really successful, high functioning drunk, Brianna. <laughs> we're just for the record, we're recording this at 730 on a Friday night. And so she's not even <laughs> drinking for the record. So <laughs> all jokes here. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say later on, I may actually like confess that, oh, no, I was drinking through that whole thing just because when people are like, oh, that was crazy, the stuff you said. Like, I was what? hammered. I was drinking. 
<laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? It was, yeah, no, totally. But anyway, so there's the mens rea and the actus rea. And so you have to be able to show criminal intent. And that means that they had the, you know, at some level, the intention to do some harm. So if you were in a bar fight and you hit somebody over the head with a beer bottle, you may not have intended to kill them, but you certainly knew that was going to cause right. harm. And so you can get into these different levels. That's why there's like a first degree murder versus second degree murder versus manslaughter. The difference all has to do with the mm. intent. The act is the same that somebody was killed as a result of your actions, but your mens rea is what establishes what level of severity the crime was and also your penalty. And so when we're talking about mens rea with respect to, you know, could you even have any mens rea? You know, when we talk about little children below the age of seven, in the United States, we generally say, well, they couldn't form the mens rea. They don't understand the implications of their actions. A lot of serial killers have attempted to use the insanity defense because it's like, oh, I didn't know right from wrong. I couldn't control my actions. Um, juries don't love that. <laughs> In fact, it very rarely works. And especially with heinous offenses where they had a cooling off period and could have you know, gone to the authorities, told somebody, uh, gone and done something. When they keep doing it over and over, it's like, right. mm. you couldn't control yourself 30 fucking times or whatever. I don't even know. Do you know how many victims he had? Like, because he didn't confess to all of them. So it's not totally known, right? But it was quite a few. It was in the double digits. Yeah, I've heard in the 60s. I've heard, you know, teens. I've heard all over because it really, and there's probably many cases that either the bodies haven't been found, they're still missing, or we just don't have enough evidence to conclusively link the right. body. Awful. So also in Utah, Ted attempts to kidnap an 18-year-old named Carol DeRanch from the mall by impersonating a police officer. And I just want to say this right now, and I think Brianna will absolutely agree with me. If you ever get pulled over by an unmarked police car and they want you to step out of the car or whatever, you absolutely have the right to call 911 and say, I've been pulled over by a, a plainclothes police officer and I want to wait until someone official comes. Because there's been, unfortunately, a lot of criminals who've been successful by impersonating officers. I don't know why the fuck you can buy like old police cars that just don't have the writing on the side. What is that? So a lot of police departments, when they're getting rid of their old fleets, let's say they're buying a, a new fleet of cars, you know, a lot of them drive those you know, newer SUVs and things like that. They're safer. Rather than just, you know, trashing them, they'll send them to auction. It's a good way of raising money. And so people can literally buy old police cars. And you guys maybe have seen this when you're driving and you see the, I know I've seen one behind and me. I, and I, I get all scared. I'm, I'm going like five below the speed limit all of a sudden. And then they pass me and I'm like, who's that asshole? <laughs> cop and i'm just always like that's not a cop are you yeah. like on a fucking weird power trip like you want people to think you're a cop or like are you fucking some sinister motherfucker who's gonna try to abduct people i don't know i don't like it and i think if you get an old cop car you're weird and you should get a different one because what the fuck they're probably like the audience is like i thought this was an episode about colorado murders they're like what the fuck so you guys we are getting to Colorado, I swear. But let me finish up Utah real quick. He attempts to kidnap Carol Durant, and she's able to break out of his car and get away, which was really amazing because she was able to later pick Bundy out of a lineup, which led to his arrest. So like, thank God for Carol and thank God she's alive and well. Actually, I don't know if she is today, but at the time, you know, 
One thing I will add about this, though, is, you know, we think, oh, my gosh, you know, serial killer made this mistake. Remember, for them to get away with it forever, they have to bat a thousand. Now, I know nothing about baseball. I know nothing about sports, actually, but I know that means you have to be perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Or like 10,000. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's about 10,000. But if that's to have a clean run, to get away with it totally, you have to be perfect. Down to not leaving one hair follicle behind, not leaving one fingerprint behind, not letting one person know your name or be seen by one victim or potential victim versus the police just have to get lucky once. Especially nowadays. It's such a rough game out there for serial killers. It's so hard, you know, (laughs) like in the 70s, they were just they were chilling. They had free reign, basically, like they had to fuck up pretty bad. You know, they did. Nowadays, it's I'm not a serial killer, but from what I hear from through the grapevine, it's it's rough out there. <laughs> but it, that is true, right? That we have less serial killers now because it's just so much harder for people to get away with multiple murders. Really quick, but I think important point on this: I have a lot of students or people that will come to me and say, "I want to be a profiler in the FBI." And what you just said, I mean, that's like, I want to be, um, I want to repair like, like VHS players. It's like, well, VHS <laughs> players don't exist anymore. You know, I'm sure there's some out there for some like a uh, high school football coach that's, you know, like watching the old tapes, but like they don't, they're no, it's not. I heard about this cool new technology. Really want to get into it. <laughs> Yeah, for your for your ultra young listeners, um, VHS tapes are back in the dinosaur oh. age. You had to be kind and rewind, or else they charge you like three bucks to rewind that for you. That's a really such a ripoff. That's how they made yeah. their money. I'm convinced was those the rewind and the late charges. Rewinding <laughs> bullshit. Wait, but so you're telling me because you're actually blowing my mind as well. <laughs> Criminal minds, FBI profilers, like that's not going on anymore. Yeah, they were kind of, it's like so many other of these, you know, kind of retro professions. They're kind of put out of business by technology. Like blood spatter. They said that's not super reliable anymore, right? Blood spatter is not, I mean, it's, I wouldn't, you know, stake a conviction on it. It can maybe be part of a a total picture that is painted about a case, but really the, the, the real nail in the coffin of, you know, profilers and serial killers is DNA, plus all the other technologies. I mean, this, you know, your cell phone is the biggest change that happened from that and DNA are the biggest changes that happened from the 70s until today. I mean, you don't go anywhere where your cell phone is not pinging on a tower. Um, and even if you had a serial killer that was very smart and didn't carry a cell phone around or used one out, an old Nokia or something, they have to leave zero DNA. Right, not a hair. Not a, and you know what? I love Dexter, the show, so much and the character. But I was always like, okay, so this motherfucker doesn't wear a hairnet to the crime scenes. Hello, Dexter, like fucking your hair follicles is your DNA. I just feel like I'm not an expert, but I feel just possibly getting fucking hair all over the scene would be a really bad move, right? So any budding serial killers out there, take note. <laughs> when I go to a crime scene and I find like this blue mermaid hair, I'm going to be like, Ashley. <laughs> and then you're going to have to start a podcast you. about me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that'll be fun. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a call when I commit a, a major crime. <laughs> but if I'm going to get arrested, it's going to be by you. 
I, yeah, and I would be calm. I just get the truth out of you, but I'd be calm about it. But um, no, this is a serious thing. And so a lot of people, a lot of students I know are trying to become FBI profilers. But I mean, the good and bad of it is there's, we have a way higher clearance rate for these crimes than we did back in the 1970s and 80s. And that has a lot to do with technology advancing so dramatically since then. But you have to be able to get away with multiple murders in order to even be considered a serial killer. If you get caught after your first time because they find your DNA, you can't be a serial killer because you only got... Gosh darn it. And remember, back then, there were no databases. Law enforcement wasn't sharing information. They didn't have the internet. They weren't able to you know, send case files and like a, in a Dropbox file. Um, they'd have to mail it to each other, run off, you know, copy. I mean, it was just a totally different world. It was the ball was in the serial killer's court. So it was so much easier for them to get away with it, which means they needed profilers. Now you don't need a profiler. You've got DNA. Right. You've told me before that profiles done by experts and laymen... <laughs> Are only um, like right about, I think you said half the time. And even like maybe a student who was very knowledgeable could probably do, you know, like maybe a John Douglas level profile. Maybe not John Douglas. They could maybe come to the same conclusion, right? Let's just say when they've done studies where they've compared, you know, psychologists, law enforcement students, there wasn't the notable gap in accuracy that you would Mm -hmm. expect. They were some were really accurate on some cases and really inaccurate on others. And it was about a coin toss, which, again, you know, when we're talking about you know, your civil liberties and putting somebody away for the rest of their life, you know, you wouldn't want it to be like, well, the profile fits. You know, it's like, where's right. the evidence? I want right. some DNA. I want some, I want some HD ultra 4K ultra footage showing them at the crime scene, you know? It blows my mind that they ever solved any murders ever in the 18 and early 1900s. I'm like, going on what? You know, they're like, mm, I smell murder here. Like, it's not like they had any other tools. It, blows my mind how they got anything done incredible i used to i would work on these old cold cases and you would look and i would see the crime scene photos and there was like eight you know they're like that's everything we got it's like eight <laughs> pictures versus now there's like eight thousand. you know on like a gigabyte of you know a storage drive and you know there's like officers like smoking over the body <laughs> the cigarette butts are like dropping and you're like can't believe this is a cold case wow can't this isn't solved but that was the way it was done back then right yeah And we've evolved so much. Law enforcement has gotten so much better. But that's unfortunately why Bundy was able to get away with so many crimes. Um, They just weren't as where they were at today. Yeah. And I got to say that I think, as we'll see coming up here, because now we're going to get into the Colorado murders, law enforcement just kind of fucked this up really bad multiple times. So um, actually, let's take a quick commercial break. And I promise when we get back, we are getting into the Colorado murders. Okay, friends, we're back. Okay, so the Colorado murders. Ted arrives in Snowmass Village, Colorado in the beginning of January 1975 while on winter break from law school. Within the first two weeks of that year, he claimed his first victim in Colorado 23-year-old Karen Campbell. Karen was on a family ski trip with her fiancé and his two children in Aspen. While the family was hanging out in the lobby on the night of her disappearance, Karen went up to the room to grab her magazine. She had actually asked her fiancé, Raymond, to go get it for her, and he wouldn't. 
And I cannot imagine the fucking guilt because somewhere between the hotel room and the lobby, Bundy found her and abducted her. And a month and six days later, her body was discovered a few miles from the lodge. And he actually admitted to this murder kind of right before he was executed. He was towards the end, which we'll get to just like spilling the beans left and right, trying to extend his execution date. But before that, he was kind of like a little bit more tight-lipped, I think, until he realized that confessions were his only bargaining chip. So next was Julie Cunningham. On the night of March 15th, 1975, 26-year-old Julie Cunningham left her apartment to head down to a local tavern to meet her roommate for a night out. While walking, she was approached by Bundy on crutches, and he asked her to assist him with carrying his ski boots to his car. She agreed, and he hit her over the head, closing her in the trunk of his car. Bundy then drove Julie 90 minutes out to Rifle, where he killed her. This was a weird case, too, because he left her body there and then later returned to bury it. And he didn't normally do this like burial ceremony. And when he was asked why he did, he said that he actually didn't know. So I thought that was kind of interesting. We always think of a lot of the serial killers as being these, you know, ultra prescient, like, oh, this is why I'm doing this. And it's got this symbolic reason. But a lot of times they just do things and they don't even know the reason why. And we kind of are speculating on it. But again, I'm going to go back to the maybe the shame he felt. He was feeling some level of shame. And that's why he wanted to bury her and not just leave her body out in the cold. Like Interesting. That. Yeah. I mean, man, he's a uh, he's a puzzle, this guy. Although I got to say, I feel like you're solving them pretty well. So (laughs) let's go to Denise Oliverson. She went on a bike ride to her parents' house in April of 1975. And Bundy did not confess to her murder until literally just moments before his execution. And a few of his unconfirmed Colorado victims include Melanie Cooley, who was 18 and disappeared after leaving Nederland High School. Shelly K. Robertson, who was 24 and failed to show up for work in Golden in July of 1975. Her new decomposed body was actually found in August inside of a mine on Berthed Pass near Winter Park Resort by two mining students. And gas station receipts do place Bundy in the area at that time, but... Again, there's no direct evidence in his involvement with this case as like Melanie Cooley's and the case remains open to this day. But they both sound like Bundy to me. But also, I know that serial killer Luther, Thomas Luther Edward, there was likely another serial killer active in Colorado when he was. So it's not totally impossible for two serial killers to be active in one place at the same time, but they do pretty much sound like his MO. So I certainly wouldn't be surprised if those were him. He then makes his way to Idaho and there he kills Susan Curtis and 12-year-old Lynette Culver. And finally, we think something cool is going to happen. He's arrested on August 16th, 1975 by Utah Highway Patrol because when he was pulled over, the officer found a ski mask, another mask made of pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, and other questionable items in his car. (laughs) And when they were like, 
you know, what is all this? He was like, uh, well, the mask is for skiing. Duh. Get it together. And I found those handcuffs in a dumpster while I was dumpster diving. <laughs> These aren't my pants or my ski mask or my, yeah, handcuffs. You know, it's like, yeah, that's not mine. Yeah, it's like, I don't know what his excuse for the dumpster diving was, but obviously this sounded like bullshit. They didn't have sufficient evidence to hold him. So he was released. But he was put on 24-hour surveillance because they were like, this guy's obviously sketchy. So they interviewed his ex, Liz Klopfer, and she told them that she had found suspicious items in her home as well as Bundy's apartment when they were dating. Crutches, plaster, a bag of women's clothing, and a meat cleaver. Which the meat cleaver didn't sound that weird to me because like, I don't know, don't people just cook meat? But maybe that's like a really aggressive kitchen utensil that's not super normal to have around. I don't have a meat cleaver, I guess. Do you? No, but I use my oven, you know, for storage. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I had macaroni and cheese for dinner last night. So we're probably not the right people to make a call on what normal kitchenware is. But Apparently, that is one of the items that she found questionable that was in either his apartment or her home. I'm just going to put this out there. If you ever see a meat cleaver in my condo, it's definitely not for cooking. <laughs> we can think about all the other things that it could be for, but it's not for cooking. Uh, yeah. No, it's um, we've talked about this before. This is not my strong suit either. If you're going to marry Brianna or I, it better be because you think that we're cool and pretty and not because you think your house is going to be clean or you're going to have a decent meal cooked for you because we're not bringing that to the table. Mm-mm. We're not. <laughs> we're bringing mermaid girl vibes. Mermaid vibe summer. God damn it. I can't. <laughs> Hot girl summer is what the kids are saying. We're so good. Mermaid girl summer is what we're saying. Okay. We got it. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. God, that laugh sounded like a cackle. (laughs) Jeez. Okay. She also mentions to the police that Bundy became really upset when she mentioned cutting her hair, which at the time had been, guess what, long and parted in the middle. When she was like, yeah, I'm just going to change it up. He was like, whoa, no, you're fucking not, bitch. I don't know if that's verbatim, but like he wasn't down. So this is like, like you said, I don't think this was DNA evidence at the time, but it was evidence nonetheless. Bundy sells his VW Beetle to a teen. And like I said, he's under tight surveillance. So the police search it and they find one of Karen Campbell's hairs. So I don't know how they knew that it was her hair if they didn't have DNA testing. It's a good question. There's maybe the same type of thing that they can do with like looking at samples under a microscope or something and seeing like the the hair looks the same. I was thinking of that, like when they find two pieces of like rug fibers, yeah, when they do that and they compare them. So in my mind, I was thinking rug fibers, maybe like the hair and similar things. I don't know. People hear I'm a criminologist and they think like, oh, you know about like forensics. I'm like, no, I do like brain stuff. Behavior yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, I don't know. To me, you sound like a fucking genius who knows everything. So I'm going to go with you. It's probably similar to like rug analysis, you know, hair analysis. <laughs> rug analysis. That could sound bad, but you guys know what we mean. Yeah. On October 2nd, 
detectives put Bundy into a lineup where he's identified by Carol Durant, the girl that he tried to kidnap from the mall in Idaho. And this gives the authorities more than enough evidence to charge him with attempted criminal assault and aggravated kidnapping. But fucking Luis bails him out on $15,000. What is wrong with some parents? I just want to strangle them. Same with Luca Magnata's mom. You know, she was like, oh, he was made fun of. Of course he would become a murderer. Like, no. I think parents sometimes have this really crazy way of convincing themselves that their child is not the devil. Probably because like you mentioned early, people sometimes just need to live in a certain amount of delusion and denial to like get through the day. So they're like, no, of course my kid's not a serial killer. That, no, because I mean, that's got to suck having a serial killer kid. I can imagine (laughs) that's not great. So he did get released, but again, he's kept on tight surveillance. So in November, the three main Bundy investigators at this point meet in Aspen, Colorado at what was called the Aspen Summit and exchanged info with 30 other detectives and prosecutors from five states. And crazily, they all concluded that they needed more hard evidence before he could be charged. I just covered Michael Peterson recently on TSFU. And it was really funny because I was talking with my co-host, Michelle, and I was like, there's so much evidence that looks so bad, but it's all circumstantial. And she was like, yeah, but sometimes when you add up a bunch of circumstances, you get a circumstance. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like, okay, maybe we don't have a fucking body, but come on. (laughs) This is obviously the guy. Yeah. Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor for the Manson trials, what I could go on and on about. That was, you know, so well done how he was able to indict both and and get successful prosecution for Manson and his family. So it was basically saying they were all equally responsible. I mean, it was brilliant. But anyway, he wrote the book about OJ. It was called Outrage. And there's one chapter where it's just all of the evidence that OJ found at the scene, it was basically that OJ did it. And he concludes after this one run on sentence that just goes on and on and on. He's basically like, if OJ didn't do it, then Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman are still alive. Right. Because there's just so much circumstantial evidence. It's almost overwhelming. It's like, well, this all cannot be pointing to the exact same person. And if it all is, that's saying something in itself. Like how many circumstances can you have? Where it's just one person's just like, man, you are super unlucky. Honestly, like I so badly want to ask you your your opinion on Michael Peterson right now. But this episode is so long and I need to (laughs) fucking wrap it up. So we will make that a personal conversation another day. Really quick. Did he do it or was it the owl? (laughs) I know where this is going. I'm going to make you uh, make you. Ah, Fine. Okay, but I think either it was definitely him or the owl. I'm just going to say that. Definitely one of those two. I don't know. Uh, I, uh, that is such a tricky one. Unlike this one, which is so fucking obviously clear cut. But anyways, like I said, they didn't have enough evidence to charge him at that point. So in February of 76, he stands trial for Durant's kidnapping and is sentenced to one to 15 years in a Utah state prison. And in October of that year, Colorado also charges Bundy. And they charge him with Campbell's murder. So he's actually transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. 
And I swear I keep saying this, you guys, but we really are going to come back and wrap it up. We're going to take one more quick commercial break and we'll be back and we're really going to wrap it up. Okay, we're back. Wrapping it up. Promise. Although, you know what? I don't think anybody's complaining because I think this episode has been a little bit longer because you've been able to provide so much fucking insight into this case and this man. So, um, YOLO, right? <laughs> we can say that, Brianna. We're, I feel like we're cool enough. I think it, my adjusted YOLO is you only learn what necrophilia means once. <laughs> <laughs> YOLO. I like it. Let's, let's stick with that. So, like I said, he gets transferred to Aspen in January of 77. So about six months later, he was taken to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen, which I'm really fucking upset that I didn't go see when I was there because when I went on this big trip recently, I saw like seven states in 12 days and I have a hundred pictures from Alcatraz and like 10 pictures from the entire rest of the trip. So that just shows where I get excited. Oh, and I have all these pictures in front of the Cecil Hotel as well, because like that's the shit that I want to go see. I'm like, let's go look at where people got murdered and shit. You know, that's my jam. So I will make it back to Aspen one day because I want to see this courthouse because it's insane to me that he was able to. It's actually not insane when you hear the story, but that he was able to escape from a courthouse is like really bewildering. But when you hear why it's not. So he goes to the Pitkin County Courthouse for a preliminary hearing where he chose to represent himself as his own attorney. And I just laugh at this because I'm not sure if it was at this court hearing or one of the other ones, but he cross-examines himself on the witness stand and like asks himself questions in third person, right? So, Mr. Bundy. Yeah, I mean, he did have like two semesters of law school, so he was qualified for (laughs) capital murder charges. Absolutely. That and he must have looked so fucking crazy being like, so, Mr. Bundy, were you in Utah of 1974? Well. Actually, I was in Colorado at that time, although maybe he wanted to look insane because that would make you look pretty cray, right? Like people are like, "Mm." reverse insanity to defense where they're actually like, someone's got to tell this dude. Does he know that he's talking to himself right now? Or do we have like a Shutter Island Leonardo DiCaprio thing going on? (laughs) So this is so fucking stupid. Since he was allowed to represent himself as his own attorney, he was allowed to be without handcuffs or leg shackles because that to me makes a lot of sense. So he requests to go to the courthouse library to, quote, brush up on his knowledge because, like you said, he only did fucking two semesters of law school. When the guard goes out for a smoke, leaving Bundy unattended, unhandcuffed or shackled, what the fuck is wrong with these people? He jumps out of the second story window and successfully escapes. He uh, shed an outer layer of clothing. And I guess that was enough for him to like not look like himself because he did successfully get out of Aspen. He headed into the mountains and broke into a hunting cabin where he stole food, clothing and a rifle. But he then proceeds to get lost in the forest for about two days, which I think is hilarious. He sprains his ankle. He's like starving. He's all kinds of fucked up. So because of that, he's caught six days after his escape because he steals a car 
and he's driving all erratically because he's driving on a sprained ankle, delirious, all fucked up. And at this point, he's sent back to a jail in Glenwood Springs. And guess what? He escapes again. What the fuck, Colorado? I think this is where we can all, all of us Colorado listeners can collectively just get together and be like, what the fuck? Come on. Insanity. People dunk on Florida all the time, but I'm like, we're not the state that let Bundy escape twice. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, "Uh, you know what? Can we just like leave Florida alone for a second and just point out that Colorado's really fucking up too? No, shit's weird over here. I don't know if it's, I noticed just because I moved here now, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on here. It's like not just all like pretty mountains and flowers. It's fucked up here too. So I'll leave Florida alone for for the rest of today, Brianna. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We get a one night reprieve because we didn't let Bundy escape twice. That's good. That's fair. Yes. There you go. Yeah. I think I can give that to you. So (laughs) he manages to get a detailed floor plan of the jail. How? Come on. And a hacksaw from other inmates. And over a period of six months, he gets $500, likely from his lover at the time, Carol Ann Boone, who also ends up marrying him later when he's on trial for his Florida murders. Spoiler alert, there are murders in Florida too. But really, I swear, we really are coming to an end. So he's able to escape from the Glenwood Springs jail because he starts skipping meals and drops 35 fucking pounds. This way, he's able to get through this hole that he made in his ceiling. And over the next couple of weeks after he's made this hole, he starts crawling around the like vents or whatever, trying to find his best escape route. And there were multiple reports from inmates to guards saying like, dude, I think somebody's like crawling around in the vents or something at night. And they're like, shut up. No, get back in yourself. Whatever, that's that's goofy. That's knucklehead stuff. That's knucklehead stuff. That's my favorite. I'm going to start saying that now. That's my new favorite. (laughs) But yeah, they're like, that's knucklehead stuff, nonsense. And on the night of December 30th, 1977, while most of the jail staff was on break for Christmas and the nonviolent prisoners were on furlough, Bundy made his second escape. And no one noticed for fucking 17 hours because he put some goddamn books on his bed and put a blanket over it. And they're like, eh, he's sleeping in. I don't know. Colorado, Jesus Christ, get it together. But we'll give him a pass because it was the 70s, right? I was just going to say, Florida's still fucking up a lot today. But I promise you a reprieve. So you promised for one night. I'm going to pretend like I didn't say that. Okay, so he escapes and doesn't get reported for 17 or no one notices for 17 hours. So that gives him enough time to get all the way to fucking Chicago because there's no like TSA at this point. No, like, hey, um, if Ted Bundy tries to hop on a flight, that's a no go. So he just flies on over to Chicago, then heads down to Florida. And on January 15th, 1978, he enters the Chai Omega sorority house through a back door that had a broken lock. 
Here, he does absolutely awful things to 21-year-old Margaret Bowman and 20-year-old Lisa Levy, killing both of them. And he attacks Carrie Kleiner and Karen Chandler brutally, but they both survive. And Carrie Kleiner later states that she thinks this is because a pair of headlights flashed into the room, which was enough to spook him out. But I just cannot imagine the terror that those girls went through that night hearing their sorority sisters suffer and I just I can't maybe this is the part where I really start having a lot more knowledge because obviously it's Florida and I told you that my colleague and friend actually was part of this case uh he worked for Leon County which is what Florida State University, where the murders occurred, um, is part of. But one thing that I should add is I work at the University of South Florida, which is not in South Florida. It's actually in Central Florida. Um, We're right on the water in Tampa and St. Pete and Sarasota. There are three campuses. But when Bundy was leaving Chicago, he actually said or wrote, I can't recall, that he wanted to go to a warm place, a university in Florida by the water. And at that time, USF had just been founded. And if he had a little bit better sense of direction, um, Tallahassee is as close to the water as like, I don't know, Austin <laughs> is to the water. I mean, it's hours away. So he like almost nailed it. It was like so close. But actually, USF would have been his prime location. So we got really lucky in the sense that, you know, he could have come to USF and Tallahassee was a much bigger city, you know, and and was able to not maybe much bigger, but at least, you know, the Leon County Sheriff's Office plus the Tallahassee Police Department, there's a lot of people that were able to respond quickly. And who knows what would have happened if he came to our, you know, sleepy town back then. So right. Thank God he didn't go get to hang out in the on the beach in the sun like he wanted to. Exactly. And one thing I will say, because it's kind of, you know, insider baseball, again, all these sports references. Yeah, I'm like, you don't know sports. Come on, Brianna. (laughs) Neither do I. So I'm like, yeah, bat bat in a million for sure. Cooking. Yeah, we have lots of things in common. And not knowing sports or cooking is two of them. (laughs) Just two. But when uh, I asked my friend about, you know, and by the way, he's substantially older than me. So if y'all think like there's this, you know, young Sprite who arrested Bundy, <laughs> you know, 50 years ago, that was not true. But he's getting on now. And I was asking him about this. And he literally said that, um, and I know this sounds so cliche, but when he was arresting Ted, and you know, they were interviewing him. Now he wasn't the interrogating officer, but he was in the room. And he said, like, Ted smelled like evil. Oh, wow. He's like, he was sweating so bad. And he was, you know, he stank and he's like, he stank like evil. But one other thing I wanted to note is like, if you just starved your way and like cut your way out of prison and you took a flight that you shouldn't be on and you got away, would your next thought be, I have to go kill again? Yeah, that that's like, he's out of control. He is insatiable. I mean, the last time I went on a killing spree, so long ago, so I can't remember after I had had a crazy one and landed in New City, what I was thinking. <laughs> I should always make a disclaimer that I'm joking. I'm doing a like, search definitely for... never murdered anybody. Yeah. <laughs> She's kidding. On purpose that I know of. Yeah. <laughs> so after fleeing the sorority house, he continues his spree because, like we said, he just can't fucking stop and breaks into Cheryl Thomas's apartment just eight blocks away. And he attacks her but leaves her alive, although she was left with permanent disabilities such as deafness and equilibrium damage. 
So it's just so hard with the survivors, you know, those things that they have to continue to deal with for the rest of their life. It's just whether you survive or you don't, I mean, it's just completely fucked. And he wrapped up the Florida murders, just for good measure, with 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach. Because why not start going after 12-year-olds? I mean, he had already been sort of dabbling into the lower numbers, I think, like in Utah when he started looking at, you know, the girls in high school and stuff. But 12, now you're getting really fucking despicable. But finally, thank God, he stopped being despicable because he was actually captured by one of Brianna's friends on February 15th around 1 a.m. He was stopped by the Alabama state line and in the car they found stolen IDs of three female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen TV set, which I thought was pretty weird, but who the fuck knows what was going on with this guy. In June of 1979, he finally stood trial in Miami for the Chiomega murders And like I said, again, he handled most of his defense and cross-examined himself in the third person on the witness stand. And I just fucking can't. (laughs) Like that literally like, I wish I could see video of it because the image of it in my mind is hilarious. He was sentenced to death by trial judge Edward Coart. And eight months later, he was found guilty in Orlando for the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach. And on February 10th, 1980, he was sentenced to death. He was finally executed via electric chair at Rayford Prison at 7.16 a.m. on January 24th, 1989. He had said in an interview before his death, quote, guilt doesn't solve anything. It hurts you. I guess I am in the enviable position of not having to deal with guilt. So essentially, To wrap it up, Ted Bundy can suck my fucking ass, and I think I can safely assume that when I say, we all agree, that I'm glad he's fucking dead. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that quote is so, it's like, he's almost still saying, guess what, I won. Even though you're executing me, I'd rather be dead than living with guilt. So guess what, I still won. Ha ha, joke's on you. Yeah, ha ha, I don't have to live with that. Yeah, he's just like the vilest of humans. Brianna, thank you again so much. I always have so much fun with you whenever we get to chat or I get to interview you or tell you a story. I mean, it's always just a blast. And tell everybody if there's anywhere you want them to go watch your stuff or read it or, you know, tell them about you. Check out my a new Hulu show, which will be coming out uh, hopefully this winter. We don't have a release date yet, but if you like this, then you'll love the show. We go through a few major cases that we try to uncover new information, me and my graduate students. And uh, let's just say there's some twists and turns. And I think that people will really enjoy it. If you like this, and I do, I love talking to you, Ash. Hopefully they'll like what the show too. Stop it. All right, you guys, look forward to that. I know I am. And if you don't already, please follow us on Instagram and TikTok and all of the places at TSFU, the podcast. And Brianna, I'm going to hit you right now. I don't have a sign off for the show yet. Do you have an idea? Go. Oh, my gosh. The pressure. (laughs) We don't do sports. 
we don't cook, but you know what we know a lot about? Murder. Thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to stay tuned for a sneak peek of next week's episode. But he had a closed door meeting with the judge, Judge Dickerson, and told him, hey, I found these photos of my dad eating poop. I don't feel comfortable around him. And the judge mm-hmm. ordered him anyways to go by himself what? on a plane. Yeah, to visit his dad. What the fuck? That's so fucked up, that's so fucked up, so fucked up, that's so fucked up. That's so fucked up presents Colorado Carnage. Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop-In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to IndieDropIn.com. All right, see you next week.